Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, will you stand with me and let's look at our passage that we're going to talk about today. Coming from the book of 1 John, chapter 2, starting in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Please be seated. Father, as we go to your word this morning, we are thankful that it is true and trustworthy and relevant. And Lord, I would ask that in this space of time, you would humble me as um, I'm privileged to open and, and speak on these things. But Lord, I pray that you would humble us as a church family, as we consider as a body and as individuals what you would call us to do this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing a conversation in the book of 1 John. And what I, one thing I love in particular about the f- book of 1 John is that it defies classification. Um, there are so many different ways that Bible scholars try to slice the book and divide it and give it an outline and put it evenly. But the work is really like a symphony. It's like these repeated themes and nuances that kind of keep weaving back in. And so you could almost grab a verse from anywhere and, and it would still kind of fit the framework. And so I, I kind of just love the fact that it, it is um, it's a little hard to define. It's a little hard to classify, and maybe that's my personality. But um, one of the things that kind of jumps out to me as I study the book of 1 John is that John seems to be making a case. He's building evidence on the testimony of the apostles, uh, on the witness of the miracles of Christ, and on the reality of the believer's own testimony, the the church uh, in in their growth, and as they testify through their fellowship, the the Greek word koinonia, with one another, that that in and of itself is a witness, right? And he's clearly trying to identify those who are truly in fellowship, right? From those who are with, with God and his body, from those who are in fellowship with the world or with darkness is the, the, the word he uses. How many parents in the room, um, just I won't ask you to, to give any particulars, but how many parents in the room would say, I am sometimes guilty of comparing my children to other people's children, all right? Hands around the room here. I'm guilty of, maybe not all the time, sometimes comparing my children to other people's children. And you know, you know those moments when you're in the supermarket, right? And you watch somebody else's child throwing a tantrum on the floor and they're like lying and spinning in a circle because they're not getting what they want. And you're just like, I am so glad my children don't do that. And then you go home 
right? And your children are doing that on the floor in the living room because they're not getting their TV show, right? Um, and, you know, you <laughs> kind of think to yourself, you know, if it weren't for the fact that I was present at the moment you were born, I might actually think you were the child of Satan. Um, so, you know, sometimes we have these thoughts. We compare our children either positively or negatively with others. And in a sense, you know, our children are, are also hard to define, aren't they? Because they have both qualities of light and darkness in them. And... John is kind of doing that here, right? What are children of Satan, right? Really, children of the evil one, because that's the phrase he uses. What are they like? What are children of the light like, right? There should be some different things that define them. So that's what he's doing in this book, right? Those who are in fellowship with God and his people are marked by being in the light, qualified in, in many ways in this book by obedience to God's commands. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. While those in fellowship with the evil one and the world are marked by being in darkness, or he uses the word lawlessness, right? A totally unruly kind of way of, of living, right? And the purpose of this identification is for the purpose, uh, the, the identification study is for the purpose of peace and security for the struggling believer and also for exposing heresy, right? Exposing false teaching for what it is. But, but for children of God, right, he's trying to secure them, help them know that they can have true confidence in their faith. The verses that we just read, look at this, this word because, right? He says, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven, right? Not so that you will know this, right? But, but that because of this fact, I'm writing to you these things to encourage you, right? I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him, because you have overcome the evil one, because you know the father. Man, what a statement. Because you know the father. That's, that's an encouraging statement, right? Because you know him who's from the beginning. As a matter of fact, over in, in chapter 2, verse 21, he makes the statement, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lies of the truth. So he's writing to encourage these believers, and that informs our text today. Though believers will stumble, because that's kind of a given in the text, you are going to sin, but we have an advocate, and you are forgiven if you are in Christ. As a matter of fact, I have one commentator I was reading made this great statement. Past forgiveness remains effective. The Christian's eschatological or eternal state is a permanent reality of forgiveness. Man, that's an amazing thing to hold on to, isn't it? And so as we think about this today, that, that statement becomes even more relevant. Um, last week when Pastor Phil was speaking, he was really talking about the standard of love, the new commandment, as it, as it were. Je Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. Sort of putting a spin on the old commandment, which was love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's the standard of love. And today we're really focusing on or evaluating the object of our love, standard of love and object of our love. And that's where we find ourselves today. And we're going to focus our time for the next few minutes on verses 15 through 17. Take a look with me one more time at verse 15. Talk about a couple statements here. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do not love the world. So I, this begs a question for me because it you know, triggers things in my mind as I'm thinking about other passages of the scriptures. Am I not supposed to love the world or am I supposed to love the world? Now, this, you know, John 2.15 makes it pretty clear I shouldn't love the world. But when I go back to John 3.16, I see this. For God so loved the world, same Greek word, 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So, th- I mean, John, which, which is it here, right? Where it feels a little bit contradictory. If God himself loves the world, and yet we are told not to love the world, do not love the world or the things in it. So we have to drill down a little more into what's being said here. And John uses the word world, this, this Greek word cosmos, um, is a common word. It's used for the universe, it's used for the earth that we stand on, and it's used for the people within the world. So we have to kind of drill down and figure out what he's talking about here. And I think that as I've been studying this week, um, John is speaking specifically in, in verse 15 here, as well as in other parts of, of this first epistle about the system of rebellion and pride that seeks to displace God and his rule, right? Not specifically the people in the world, but the system of rebellion and pride that seeks to displace God and his rule. So you hear me use the word system a number of times today. And what we're talking about is is values and principles and the priorities that govern our lives as human beings that are totally foreign from what the word tells us we should live by. Right? So, so John is not telling us to hate the people in the world right, or the things that God has himself a love for, but to hate the things and be not identified by or, and don't love the things that God does not love. All right? um, as a matter of fact, this is the New Living, New Living Translation. The, the writer says this, the world or cosmos is a morally evil system that is under the influence of Satan and is opposed to God and to Christ's kingdom on this earth. The world appeals to people's fleshly desires and thereby diverts them from God. Those who are from this world need God to redeem them from it. It's a system of, of, of evil and rebellion and self-interest that seeks to displace God and his rule. And so that word, the world, becomes a name that John uses for, the, for, for people who refuse Jesus and instead choose Satan or the evil one to be their father. It's a distinction, children of the light, children of, of the darkness. Worldly systems and those who submit to them are hostile to the light, aren't they? Right? John 1, he says the word, the word became flesh, right? Came into the world and, and the world loved the darkness more than the light, right? And that's this reality. People of the darkness prefer the darkness and they hate the things of the light. So when we read, do not love the world or the things in this world, what we're not reading is a total utter rejection of everything that God has created, right? Genesis 1:31, God finishes his creation and what does he call it? good and very good, right? It is a very good thing that God has made. Now we know that two chapters later, it's going to fall into sin. It's going to be corrupted and broken. And yet, even in the midst of that, where God pronounces a curse on the earth and a curse on the man and on Satan and on the woman, right? Um, He provides hope. He gives that first note of hope and redemption that he will come and redeem all these things that are broken. So it's not a rejection of the created order. And as a matter of fact, Things in this world can be used for good. Um, let's see, verses, um, John, uh, 1 John 3, 17 says this. Um, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So again, it's not the things of this world themselves that are evil, right? Though they are impacted by the sinful universe that we find ourselves in they can be used for good things for God's purposes. So we're not rejecting everything that God has made. Human desires are likewise part of God's creation. The things that we feel are 
principles, our priorities, things that, are, that we just kind of naturally want. They're part of God's creation and aren't inherently evil, but they do become twisted when not directed by and toward our God. And so we have to consider, what is it that John is telling us not to love in this world? Christians are fully immersed in the world, aren't we? We live here, right? You're here this morning, that means you live in the world and you live in some way under the systems that the world upholds, right? We are all part of this universe. And yet, even though we are fully immersed in this world, we are called to remain distinct from its practices and priorities. Just look at this, the same Greek word here for world, cosmos, right? Paul says in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. James 1.27 classifies religion that's pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained by the world. And then again, later in chapter four, he actually calls believers, adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God or hostility against God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, right? There is a difference here between loving the people in the world and loving what the world values. Isn't it great to know though that God rescues people from this world? Amen. We're all recipients of that, are we not? Right? We have been rescued from this world, though we still inhabit it, and so we have a similar heart for the lost. Um, John 1.29, John turns and he says of, of Jesus as he comes into the crowd, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He takes it away. He rescues people. John, uh, 1 John 2, verse 2 said that he was the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world, right? The availability of this free gift is there for the world. Redemption is freely available for those who are ensnared in the world. Chapter four of 1 John, verse nine says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the God who rescues people, and we have a similar mission. As a matter of fact, uh, a couple of verses after the one I just read, 1 John 4, 17 says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. We're redeemed, and we have the opportunity to reach out and bring others into that kind of redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. Our mission in life is an extension of Christ. So we have to love the lost even as we hate the world that enslaves them. All right? That's where we find ourselves today as Christians. As believers, we must have a love for people who are ensnared in the world and who are in need of divine rescue just as we ourselves once were. That should be our heart because that was the heart of our Savior. But the beauty is that even the world itself will one day be redeemed, restored, recreated, however you interpret that, from its present corrupted form, right? God is going to work a new creation. The old things will pass away and all things will become new. That's the beauty of it. And so, John tells us, do not love the world, verse 15, or the things in the world, right? And interestingly enough, the word for love there is a Greek word you might be familiar with. It's the word agape, right? 
which is a word that we would say God applies to us. God has an agape love for us, a committed, sacrificial, wholehearted love. And so John is saying, don't have that kind of love for the world systems. Don't have a committed, uh, self-interested kind of love for the things that are only going to provide you what is temporary and earthly and, and of uh, pertaining to this life, right? Don't have that kind of love. If you do, if you have that kind of love and a, a committed love for the world uh, in its systems, it's, it's indicative of a lack of a committed love for God, right? You can't have both of those things. They don't go together. You can't balance a love for the world and its systems and a love for the eternal God of the universe. And he says, right, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So that could be, uh, translators will say, you can interpret that almost both directions, either love that God has for you or love that you have for God. It can't exist there because you are so obsessed with the things that are temporary, the things of this world, right? That's, that's not where we should be. That's not where we should be. Wholehearted, committed love for the, for the world is indicative of a lack of wholehearted, committed love for or from the Father. So a couple of thoughts here, and then I, I want to give us a couple, of, um, a couple of cultural lies that I want to work through with us today as we think about verse 16 together. But verse 16 says, all that is in the world right? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions or pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, all right? John qualifies worldly thinking with three exemplary but not exhaustive values. In other words, these three things are placeholders for all the different types of things that we could have an affection for that are not necessarily of God, but of this world, right? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life. Uh, if you're familiar with, with church history, you may know the name Thomas Aquinas. He wrote this great uh, text, the Summa Theologica. Uh, but anyway, he, he reduced all worldly goods to three things. He said there were honors, there were riches, and there were pleasures. And that's a pretty good umbrella, right? Honors, riches, and, and pleasures. That kind of covers the scope of our desires as human beings, right? I want to be recognized. I want to be honored, right? I want to be comfortable in life. I want to have things. And I feel desires, and I want to fulfill them. And so lots of the things that we experience can fall into that, right? But the word desires here, so that, that might be a helpful framework for us. But the word desires that John is using here could maybe better be translated as the word um, lusts, right? It's not a wrong desire per se for, for evil things. It's an inordinate desire for good things, right? Or things that are not themselves inherently evil. You see the distinction there? A lust is a sinful desire. The desire itself is sinful, but the object is not necessarily bad, right? Honor, riches, and pleasures don't necessarily have to be evil, right? There are things in this world that God gives us as a blessing to enjoy, but to want them too much is to lust after them. And I think that's what John is saying here. The things that are in this world, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, right? These are things that God gives that we want too much. These are things that we want too much. And I think, as I consider my heart and, and our world, I think many Christians— Many of us, we would be totally happy with a life that was full of those things, but devoid of Christ. The things that are of this world, the blessings that God can give us, we love the blessings, but we don't always worship the one who gives them. Um, dads in the room, do you sometimes feel like an ATM to your teenage children? Maybe. Um, moms in the room, do you feel like you exist to drive your kids places? 
right? There's maybe not the recognition that you might like from your kids as, hey, you know, I appreciate how hard you work and the time that you have, and this is your car, and I'm not paying for gas money and all this. Like, you know, there would be some kind of reciprocation that would make you feel like, you know, that, that you know, okay, I don't, I don't mind doing this so much. But that's not always the case. And as Christians, do we not operate in a very similar way? Because we're so short-sighted on the things of this world, we sometimes are just, yeah, God, give me the things that I need, take care of my everyday stuff, right? Bless me a little bit on top of that. And, you know, I'll give you Sunday morning for an hour, right? Like there's, there's not that love for Christ and, and that richness of knowing that I have a relationship with him and he is all I need and he's worth it all because you know, we focus on the stuff, right? The, the gifts rather than the giver. You know, as believers, we can still be, you know, I, I don't know, I, when I think about what John is about to say here, you know, you might think, you know, why would a believer ever be tempted by these things? Because he goes on to, you know, to warn, right, that, the, that um, it's not that you should avoid these things because they're bad, like they're actually, they're actually good things, right? Um, but, um, but they're hollow gains, right? There's, there's not anything eternal in them. The world doesn't do us any favors. As a matter of fact, if we take a little tour here, um, 1 John 4, verse 4, he says, little children, you are from God, and you've overcome them. That is uh, the, the false teachers that he's warning them against. He says, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So the world is not worth much, right, in, in terms of its systems and its values, because God has overcome it. Right, chapter five, uh, verse four, he says the same thing. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? This world is not the thing we should be chasing because there's something, it's been overcome, it's been conquered, right? There's more that we should desire in Christ. And the world doesn't do us any favors in return. As a matter of fact, if you go back to chapter three, verse one, um, he says at the end of verse one, the reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. There is no fellowship, right? There's nothing there. And verse 13 of chapter three says, don't be surprised brothers that the world hates you, right? The systems of the world are disposed against people who have a different value system. And the people who hold to them are against us. So why would you love that, right? Why would you love being part of that when there is animosity that exists between the believer and those things? The world doesn't return us that favor. And the world is deceived. Chapter 4, verse 1 says that many false prophets have gone out into the world. The spirit of error is influencing the thinking of the world. Why would we want to be part of that? Verse three, every spirit that does not confess, uh, chapter four, verse three, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Why would you want to be part of that? And yet that's where we are. We want the things of this world, don't we? We want the gifts, not the giver. The things of this world will never provide, right? And that's, that's the essence of this passage in Matthew 16. What will it profit a man, Jesus says, if he gains the whole world, same Greek word, forfeits his soul, what shall a man give in return for his soul? What is it, what is it worth, right, to hold on to all this stuff? Earlier in, in that same gospel account, Matthew records Jesus saying, you know, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy them, where thieves can take them, right? There's nothing in this world that we want to hold on to because it's not going to provide. And yet, believer, we are susceptible to this. Look at this example that Paul gives. He says, do your best, he's writing to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. 
Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, and Luke alone is with me. At the end of his ministry, Paul speaks of Demas, someone he commended previously in his epistles as a, as a faithful laborer for the kingdom, right? He says, he's in love with this present world, and he's deserted me. Christian, where are you? Do you focus on the things of this world, right, to such a degree that you miss the giver in favor of the gift, and you lose your heart for the ministry that God has called you to do to redeem people out of this world. Amen. I don't want to be like Demas. Now, to be fair, um, because I'm, I, I feel I must say this, the, the word for world there in, in the Greek is a word for age. It's a slightly different Greek word, but Paul uses it in a very similar kind of way that John does to describe to the, this age, right, this age that we find ourselves in. Demas is obsessed with this life. He's missed the opportunity, right? He's, he's gone back and he's calling his own faith into question. So with these things in mind, all right, with these things in mind, let, let's talk about some cultural lies and try to dismantle them from these. And, and these ideas are based off of these three ideas, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions. Let me give you this first cultural lie. Okay, cultural lie number one. Feeling good about myself is the ultimate priority. Feeling good about myself is the ultimate priority, and I believe this is the essence of this desires of the flesh statement. Now, the Greeks, the, their context for understanding um, the, the flesh and the desires of it, this Greek word sarkos, um, it's a desire for pleasure arising from carnal human nature, so their perspective was on this fleshliness, right, and, and often uh, perverted kind of, uh, of a sense there. The Hebrew backgrounds, right, so you got Greek and Hebrew perspectives coming together here, are the tendencies of human nature that are bereft of divine help. In other words, when left to our own devices as human beings, what are the desires that come out, okay? And then you've got Paul, right, who uses this same phrase about gratifying the desires of the flesh, right? He's almost always using this phrase to talk about things that are in opposition to God's law, sources of wisdom in opposition to that, um, general bad tendencies of sinful people, all right? That's how Paul tends to use this. But again, John seems to be using this maybe more specifically just to speak about human nature, right? Desires that aren't not necessarily inherently evil, but become lustful. They become um, uh, just idolatrous kind of desires, elevated above what they should be. Satisfied, uh, excuse me, all that satisfies the needs and wants of my, hum of my human um, earthly sense, my bodily appetites, anything associated with the physical world. Why is that important? Again, we're talking about things that when we want them, right, as human beings, it might, it's not necessarily sinful to want them until we elevate that desire above what it should be, okay? And so what I feel, right, I become uh, obsessed with feeling good about myself. I make that the internal priority. That's, my, that's, that's our context today. The internal values, what I feel to be real, what I, what I want to be, uh, what I consider good and best for me, right? It, it almost is it's tying my identity and who I am and my priorities and my values to what I feel, what I want, right? And we as Christians will fall into this lie because we also elevate our internal desires and our personal identities over the eternal identity and purposes to which God has called us. We have a tendency to do that in the same way that, uh, that, that we saw um, in, in Demas's example, right? We're prone, as, even as Christians, to manipulate what God says in order to uphold the popular cultural belief that God wants us to be happy, right? That God wants us to be happy. Um, so uh, most of my time here at the church is spent with teenagers. 
spent a lot of time over in that end of the building. And uh, I spent a lot of time coming up with really dumb games for them to play. All right. And so uh, just to give you an example, this past Thursday, uh, this was inspired by something I found on the internet. But um, if you can picture, I really should have had you guys come up and, and do this with me just for the fun of it. But um, if you can picture two people sitting back to back, blindfolded, all right, each holding two pool noodles. All right, you got, got the scene there? Two people back to back, blindfolded, holding pool noodles. And between them on the floor is a metal bowl with my giant key ring in it. So it's going to make a lot of noise if it comes out, right? And the simple object of the game, right, is that the people who are sitting there with the pool noodles will defend the keys and smack people that try to get them, all right? And there are people on the outside that are trying to sneak up and get the keys away without getting smacked, all right? And so that's that's the game, okay? That's the game, right? But whenever I come up with games, and some of it's kind of creative fun, but whenever I come up with a game or I'm, you know, changing a game that I found on the internet, I'm always like, you know, what rules could we add? What kinds of things can we do that would make this more fun and, and inventive? And sometimes I'll invite some of the teens to help me think about, you know, what, what kind of rules can we add to this game to make it more fun and inventive? Um, but what I love about playing games with teenagers is that they will always try to find the way around the rule, Right? Okay, they'll, they'll try to find the creative way to win the game, right? The, or, or they will interpret the rules um, to the best of their abilities to benefit themselves, right? So that they can, they can win this game, right? And so we're playing this game and it's fun. People are getting smacked and I'm cracking up and watching. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, somebody throws a shoe at the bowl, all right? And knocks the ball out and the keys are grabbed, right? And so, okay, we won the game, right? Because I figured out a way around these rules. I don't have to sneak if I can just throw a shoe. And I don't know whose shoe it was. Was it yours, Dawson? Did you throw your shoe? It wasn't yours. Okay. Somebody threw a shoe and uh, all the, I was like watching and all this shoe came out of nowhere and this bowl goes flying and there are my keys and, you know, the game's over, right? And so, you know, that's kind of the way we tend to interpret God's rules, I think, right? How can I take these things and interpret them in the most liberally possible way to myself so that I can feel good about myself, but I'm still kind of playing the game, you know? I'm still kind of upholding God's rules. I can feel good about myself spiritually, but man, I also feel good about myself and the things that I want. You know, and as Christians, that's unfortunately the way we often tend to operate, right? There's problems with this view, right? That that what I want, you know, it, it, what I feel is the most important thing. I mean, I, what I consider good is inevitably going to change because what I feel changes, right? We see the the problem inherent with this, interpreting it that way, right? Because. I feel a certain way one day and I feel a certain way another day, right? So that's going to change. There's also no legitimate expectation for others to respect my version of good, right? Because they have their own interpretation of good, right? What they feel also matters and we're going to interpret things differently. And maybe the most dangerous thing about this, everyone, is feeling good about myself removes my need for grace, Feeling good about myself removes my need for grace, right? Because I just think I'm basically okay. I'm passing, I don't really need that grace thing anymore. I'm living by the minimum standard of the law. I'm, I'm passing. I, I, that, that can't be good, right? This is self-deception, right? If I bring it to our context as a parent, this is something I, I wrestle with, right? As, as an angry parent, I can justify my behavior against my children by saying I'm angry about the right things and therefore I'm still a good parent even though I'm angry all the time. It's what I feel, right? I'm a good parent. I'm going to feel good about myself. I'm angry at my kids. Whatever I'm doing, I'm angry about the right things. They should be listening, right? I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm living by the law technically, right? But am I really? And I think that the thing we need to understand about this, right, is God is not this God who wants you to be miserable, right? But his priority is not your happiness. It's your joy, 
right? It's not your happiness, it's your joy. And the Bible, almost every single time it talks about joy, it's also talking about suffering. It's talking about hardship and sanctification because the process of suffering, First Peter tells us, is what removes from us our, our desire to sin, right? And so God wants our joy. It's found through our shaping and it's found through drawing us to the fact that he is the priority, right? And when we live for him, he's gonna work and in, in, in change and transform our desires. Here's our biblical truth. We are more than our bodily desires, which are broken and need redemption. We are not less than them, okay, but we are more than them, more than our bodily desires, which are broken and in need of redemption. That's why in verse 17, right, desires and things associated with this world, it says the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever, all right? Take a look at this this verse in John, um, Gospel of John. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of, this is our phrase, the will of the flesh or the desire of the flesh is the same Greek word, nor of the will of man, but of God, right? That's where redemption is, in not, not in, in the will of the flesh, but in the will of God. Jeremiah 17, 9, you're probably familiar with it. It says, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it, right? And it says, I, the Lord, search the heart and the mind. All right, and so our desires are broken and they need to be restored. They need to be restored. God created us to desire. That's part of who we are being made in his image, but only the things and values he defines as truly good and only in their appropriate context, all right? Let's talk about another cultural lie here. Cultural lie, number one, feeling good about myself is the ultimate priority. This is the desires of the flesh, but we are more than our bodily desires which are broken and need redemption. Here's our second one. What I seek will bring me satisfaction, right? What I seek will bring me satisfaction, and this is the desires of the eyes, desires of the eyes. And really, if we wanna just put another label on it, this is, this is materialism, right? It is seeking after things that I believe will bring me satisfaction. I really love the way um, that this one translator used, the, he, he described this as eyes that are hungry for all they see eyes that are hungry for all they see. And that reminds me of these passages in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 4, 7. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, the preacher says, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, right? Building this empire for himself and his solitary nature. Ecclesiastes 5, 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who values wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes, right? They're, they're passing, they're transitive. Proverbs 27, 20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. These are, are terms for uh, the, the heaven and hell in a, in a Hebrew conception, right? And uh, never satisfied are the eyes of man, right? In, in the same way that the, the afterlife, if you will, are o- is always taking souls, right? The eyes of man is never satisfied by what, what they see, all right? Augustine called this every species of curiosity, right? Our eyes are always just interested in what's out there, always looking, always wanting. Now, again, the desire to, well, for the things that we see is not inherently evil, but it's a focus on what, is it, on what is earthly. It's an inability to see heaven beyond the earth, right? Just always focused on what is temporary in here right in front of our eyes. All these external, tangible, material things that I don't currently have, right? Now, even when I have a lot of things as a human being, even when I have a lot of things, what is it that I focus on? 
what else could I have, right? <laughs> what else do I want? So um, people in the room who collect things, can I see some hands? Does it, do any people in the room collect things? What do we collect? Give me, what do you collect, sir? Electronics. Somebody else give me something you collect. Somebody else who raised a hand. Bells. bells. What kind of bells, Becky? Handbells. Okay, great. So we could, we could arm every single person in here to make a bell choir. <laughs> Almost. Okay. Somebody else give me something that we collect. Seashells. Okay, great. Do you, seashell collection in the house. Babe, what do I like to collect? Records and books. Okay, so these are things that I love. And every time I go record shopping, I come home with more records or more books. And then I'm thinking, hmm, there's another one that I need, right? I'm, I'm missing one. And I tell people all the time, like, there's nothing to me, like, such a cathartic experience digging through the crates of used vinyl. It's just one of my favorite things in the world. And, it, you know, it's the, the thrill of the chase. I'm seeking, I'm hunting, right? I'm always wanting more, right? And so the reality is that we want things that we don't currently have, all right? We fall into this lie too as Christians, don't we? That, that we elevate our physical wants over God's eternal priorities. Even though we know that mere things won't make us happy, we still crave them, don't we? We still take comfort in the physical things. And there's a balance there, there's a tension there. Because again, God created these things for us to enjoy. But when we elevate them, we find our security in them, all of a sudden we are succumbing to the desires of the eyes, right? Materialistic thinking, by the way, if you're thinking in this room, I don't have a lot of stuff. I, I don't feel very wealthy, all right? I, I don't feel like that's, you know, necessarily a thing for me. Materialistic thinking is just as dangerous to the person who doesn't have lots of money and possessions, right? Inflation, soaring gas prices, all of these things can make us feel that our wallets are empty and think, man, it must be nice to have a, you know, a wallet full, right? Must be nice to live in that house versus the house that I'm living in, right? We, we have this materialistic thing, and we become even more susceptible to the love of money when we don't have it, right? First, 1 Timothy 6.10, he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? That, that desire for what we see, what we wish we had, and the biblical truth for us is simply this, right? Um, simply this, earthly things will never last or fulfill. They will never last or fulfill, right? And again, he says in verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. All the things that we could see and want, right, in this world, they are transitory. They are temporary. They do not last, all right? Here's our third lie, and we'll, we'll conclude with, with this thought, all right? Cultural lie number three, I am all I need, I am all I need. And this is, some translations uh, translate the third quality here, the third thing is the pride of life. Uh, the ESV, my ESV translation says the pride in possessions, but even ESV translations sometimes use life instead of possessions because this word is used there is a word for life or livelihood. It's the Greek word bios. Um, and it's referring to social standing, financial security, material life, right? All of which inflates my self-confidence, my self-assurance, right? So you can see how those two words can become somewhat interchangeable, right? I think maybe the best biblical passage to describe this is James 4. He says, uh, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. All these assumptions being made, right? He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will, do, uh, we will live and do this or that. As it is, and here's our pride of life idea, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. 
Pride of life, right? Pride of possessions, right? My identity, my security is tied to what I have, right? It's independence. Maybe colloquially, I've got this, right? I've got this when it comes to life. I don't need anybody else, right? It would be nice to have people because we're inevitably um, relational creatures, right? But like, I don't need anybody else. Me, myself, and I, I got this, right? I believe that I can create my own earthly security, but what do I truly have, What do I truly have if the world and its desires are passing away? Can I really bank on time? Can I really bank on my reputation, the relationships that I have, the money that I have, the independence I have? What is it that I can really, truly, definitively hold on to? Um, there's, a, there's a lyric, I, I, I probably can't even reference this guy's name because I think he's got lots of explicit material, but um, he did a lyric with U2, and I love U2, um, uh, Kendrick Lamar, but um, he, said, he has this line in, um, in a U2 song where uh, he's sort of like, sort of um, using the ideas of the Beatitudes, and he says in there, uh, one of the lines is, um, you can only truly own what you give away. You can only truly own what you give away. And I thought that was pretty profound, actually, right? I can't hold this stuff. I can't keep it for myself. I can't, I can put security systems on my house, right? And I can guard it night and day and all that. But, you know, I can't really protect it all the time. Um, But if I give it away, man, I own that, don't I? Right? I can give it away and it can be for somebody else's good. And maybe that's why the apostles, when they're talking in the book of Acts, they say, they attribute to Christ the words, it is more blessed to give than to receive, Right? And maybe that's the heart of this, right? Because we don't want to hold on to things that are passing away. We want to use them. Again, the worldly goods that we can use for the benefit of, of another person. All right? um, we fall into this lie, don't we, as Christians, because we assume that we are all we need in and of ourselves. Um, I'm, I'm sure that many of us in this room would acknowledge that we struggle with our spiritual disciplines, right? Spending time in God's word, praying regularly, memorizing the scriptures, meditating on what they mean, right? We struggle to do that, right? I'm not the only one, right? Okay, so we struggle to do that. If we're, not, if we're not doing that, what are we depending on spiritually each day? Myself. I got this, right? If I don't feel the need to consult God's word and to walk according to what he asks me to do, I got this. It's a pride of life in a sense, right? I, I, I am all that I need. We can't be there. What are we building our dependence on? Right? The people who depend on me, I depend on those people for what they provide. Being good at what I do, my bank account, my investments, my real estate, as Lucy says in Peanuts, right? Um, my reputation, my respect, my intellect, my skill, my marketability. Where is my confidence? It's in me if I'm not depending on the Lord. And so our biblical truth is this. I'm all I need, right? Real security is found in knowing and doing the will of God. Now, look, this is what he says, right? The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, if we're good Protestants, we're saying that smacks of works-based salvation, right? Uh, and so let's, let's think about this for a second, okay? Right? Real security is found in knowing and doing the will of God. That's what it says there in verse 17, all right? Chapter 3, verse 18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gives this analogy of the, the foolish man and the wise man. One builds his house on the sand, one builds his house on the rock. And he starts that, that parable out by saying, um, the one who hears and does what I say, right? The one who hears and does what I say, that's the person who's wise. James 1.22 says that we should not be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word, right? So there is a, there's a, a doing and knowing component here, but that obedience stems from being found in Christ, 
right? It stems from being found in Christ by grace through faith, as Ephesians chapter 2, 8 tells us, right? 2, 8 and 9 says that we are saved by grace. This is not of your own doing, right? Not a result of works that anyone should boast. But then verse 10 says, but we are his workmanship created for good works, right? Created for good works that we should live and do these things, okay? And so obedience, right? A real security, knowing right, that I am totally taken care of, right, that I am part of God's family, right, and that there is nothing in this world that I depend on. Real security, therefore, is found in knowing and doing the will of God. This kind of obedience means that I'm fully acknowledging that he is my sovereign master, so I should do whatever he asks, all right? This obedience requires my full dependence on Christ because I am not enough, right? I am not all I need. I need his strength to do it, right? But living this out means I'm abiding in Christ. Obedience to Christ means abiding in him, which results in eternal peace and confidence. And this is the like, recurring theme throughout this whole book, right? The, the, by this you know, by this you know, by this you know, John says over and over again. And it all comes back to, if you're doing this, it's coming from somewhere, right? You have fellowship with God and his people, right? Because that's what you do as a believer. So the world really grasps for security, right? But it's an illusion of control. The Christian actually finds security in surrendering control, not grasping for it, right? We find our security in the exact opposite because we're depending on the one who is truly sovereign. The world's broken systems and values, they're transitory, they're passing away. Because of the victory won by Christ, and they will inevitably be abolished at his appearing, according to chapter two. But contrast... Uh, by contrast, those who act as Christ did in accordance with his will, his values, and his priorities will be transformed but remain. Isn't that a great hope? Amen. The things that are passing away of this world, the things that we value are not going to pass away as, as believers. So here's our review, all right? Cultural lie number one, feeling good about myself is the ultimate priority. That is false. We are more than our bodily desires, which are broken and need redemption. Cultural lie number two, what I seek will bring me satisfaction. False. Earthly things will never last or fulfill. They never will. And our third one, I am all I need. That is false. Real security is found in knowing and doing the will of God. This is what we're about today. Undivided love, a love that is focused on the things that God would have us, on himself and his mission a believer's wholehearted commission to the priorities and values of God with no conflicting attachments to the world. Both our standard of love, that is Christ, and the object of our love must be radically transformed from a short-sighted orientation toward what is tangible in order to focus on God and the eternal kingdom that he's building. Can we do that together as believers? Can we commit to working on that in our hearts as believers today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is true, and we depend on it. Lord, thank you for the call that you've placed in our lives, that, um, Lord, we would surrender our hearts to yours, because there is salvation found in no other. Lord, that from that place of rescue, we would live lives of obedience and surrender. Lord, not operating by the values and the priorities of this world, but with transformed minds and renewed hearts that value eternal things. Uh, Lord, I just pray that this morning, wherever we might find ourselves in this, whether we are prone to uh, navigate by what we feel, whether we are um, enslaved to the things that we see and want and, and feel um, run by our, our checkbooks, Lord, 
or um, Lord, whether we are just always finding security in what we, what we think, our own ideas, whatever the case might be, Lord, I pray that we would evaluate our own hearts and consider what you're calling us to do today to live in greater dependence on you. Uh, Lord, I pray for us as a church family that that would be what we are known by, that we live in total surrender to you, uh, and Lord, that we are operating according to your standards and not the standards of this world. Lord, I thank you for your grace and that, that even where we fail, uh, Lord, you are sufficient. Uh, go before us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill. Mullica Hill.